Hollywood lies to us. In fact, this isn't unknown. People clearly know this, but they choose to flat out ignore it when they see themselves as the hero of the story. Take romantic comedies, for example. Women love them because they can see themselves as the heroine getting the guy, and guys see themselves as the hero getting the girl, usually after completing some extravagant and over-the-top thing to show how much he loves the woman and that she should be with him. In reality, this almost never happens, but we want it to. We might daydream about swooping in like a knight in shining armor and saving our betrothed from making the worst decision of their lives. It's a good fantasy, and I'll admit, I've had my own from time to time, but we know that it's a fantasy. It won't actually happen. No matter how many times I've seen Notting Hill, I'm not Hugh Grant, and I'm not going to marry Alicia Silverstone. I mean, Julia Roberts. However, what happens when that fantasy starts to manifest itself as reality? What happens when you stop seeing the real world and instead you start thinking that you're Hugh Grant? Well, you might be a former bank robber. You might steal a plane in Canada, fly it to Nashville, and turn it into a flaming wreckage before you're able to be with your one true love, Taylor Swift. If that's the case, you might be Michael Callan. Don't be like Michael Callan. You know, the song I Knew You Were Trouble When You Walked In could easily apply to Michael Callan later in his life, but not when he was a baby. Born in 1968 in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, Michael was the youngest of four children. His mother, Elizabeth Callan, was deeply religious, but that didn't translate to a strict and pious upbringing for young Michael. In fact, she admitted that she was really rough on her three other children, but she was too lenient on her baby boy. She said that Michael was the sweetest boy growing up, but at some point that changed. Based on the information I can find out about Michael, what probably happened is that he lost his way after going through technical high school and then graduating from the Canadian Aviation Institute only to get denied entry to the Canadian Air Force training program. You know, from there, he ended up getting a job working as a bouncer for a strip club named Silvers and was ultimately remembered as a clean guy who never looked like a bum. But during this time, he was mostly unemployed and living with his mother, and eventually he got to be too much of a burden for her, who asked him to leave the house when she found bullets in their home. After that, he lived with his girlfriend for a bit and would flip between being absolutely broke to having large wads of cash. Not much information is known about his life during this time, but it wasn't long after that he took on the identity as the most prolific bank robber in Windsor, Ontario. Now, the authorities believe that Callan robbed his first bank in 1994 when he was only 26 years old. He was never caught for this crime, and afterward he probably laid low until about 1997 when he began a string of ballsy bank robberies over the span of 11 months. The way Michael Callan would rob a bank was very simple. He was a lone gunman with a stolen car, and his trademark, which was unusual cruelty, at least according to the authorities. He would use a pistol with a laser sight attached to it for extra intimidation, going as far one time as to escort a pregnant bank teller to the vault by pointing the laser and the gun at her belly. Callan would threaten the bank staff. He kicked and punched one of the female tellers in the back. He inflicted terror on these innocent civilians in order to force their compliance. During his crime spree, he'd been linked to five total bank robberies. However, authorities believe that he committed more. And if the 1994 robbery is any indication, it's pretty probable that he did rip off more banks. 
what ultimately brought Callan's crime spree to an end was a glorious fuck up on his part. Back in November 1997, he got confident, i.e. cocky enough, to stick up two banks in the same day. One of the banks was actually a repeat of the first bank he robbed 11 months prior. What got him in trouble this time was his getaway car. Callan had snuck onto a car lot and stolen a brand new Chrysler Intrepid. Windsor at the time wasn't the kind of town that had these kind of brand new cars that were really only valued at like $20,000 running through it every day. So he stuck out like a sore thumb and the cops were pretty quickly able to track it back to the Windsor Flying Club at the Windsor Airport. Callan tried to quickly put on a disguise as a way to throw people off the scent, but the guy working the front desk saw him walk into the bathroom wearing one set of clothes and walk out with a new pair of clothes on. Then Callan sat in the lobby of the Flying Club for a half hour as to not draw any extra attention to himself before leaving. The reason why he chose the Windsor Flying Club as his preferred place to lay low was because he was a former member, and it was because he was known that a flight instructor was able to point the finger at Callan, and then the jig was up. When he was arrested, a reporter from the Windsor Star went to go see his mother, and she didn't seem surprised at all that he was fingered for the crime. In fact, she was reported as being relieved that he was in custody. She was even happy to find out that he didn't hurt anyone this time. I can only imagine that she had followed the reports of the bank robberies for the past year, and she probably heard about the cruelty. Now, I don't know if she thought it was her son or not, but given her line of questioning for the reporter interviewing her, I'd say that it's likely she at least had an inkling. I'd like to ask her myself, but she sadly passed away from dementia in February 2019. Michael was eventually arrested in the lunch line of the Salvation Army, and then he was charged with five bank robberies, and he was found guilty on all charges. I mean, the jurors didn't even have to deliberate for longer than two hours before they brought back the verdict. The judge sentenced him to 14 years in jail for his crimes, and what's really interesting is that the detective who brought Callan down figured that Michael would be out on parole pretty quickly, because apparently in Canada, most prisoners don't actually end up serving their entire sentence. Must be that whole Canadians are like super nice stereotype that we keep hearing about here in the States. But in Callan's case, he actually ended up serving almost all of his sentence in custody. Why? Because he was apparently a fucking terrible inmate. From the first day he was in prison, this guy was a piece of shit. He was racist, abusive, and apparently he became increasingly bizarre over time. He would write guards very vulgar letters, and if a female guard were to approach his cell, he'd always be naked and masturbating. It was clear that the Canadian prison system figured he needed to be behind bars for as long as humanly possible. And honestly, I, I don't disagree here. But I do feel like he should have been in a mental ward versus an actual prison. Because what Michael did next was odd for a near 42-year-old man who had been locked up since before social media became a thing. He started getting obsessed with celebrities. Celebrities like Taylor Swift. At his parole hearing in 2011, the parole board learned that he had been writing stacks of letters to several celebrities, most of which were young actresses. None of this information would have been public if Callan himself didn't describe it to the parole board. I mean, he even admitted to writing letters under a pseudonym, Leo Peloto Leon. But he tried to cover it up by saying that he was over Swift and that he had moved on to a different actress. 
a younger one. Because, you know, that's fucking good. And as we've come to find out now, that was actually Miranda Cosgrove from iCarly that Callan had become more obsessed with than Taylor Swift. According to reports, Callan would make brazen claims about loving her virginity. He'd tell her that he loved her. He'd say he wanted to marry her. He even drew her pictures. And this is weird and true. He offered her power of attorney over his finances. Now, this one caught me off guard a little bit because he was a two-bit bank robber that got lucky. How much money did he have stashed away? That is something that I'm unable to figure out. However, it might come into play later on. Now, he was admittedly obsessed with Miranda Cosgrove. He testified about it. And he was even mentally aware enough to say, now it's just a question of how she feels. I want to think that Michael had some delusions of grandeur here. But at least the Windsor police reached out to Miranda Cosgrove's parents and warned them about him before his release on parole. As a result of this, Cosgrove's parents beefed up a security event at Memphis, Tennessee not long after. Now, Michael was actually ordered by the court to not have any contact with Cosgrove, but not Taylor Swift, because he was over her, as he told the authorities. And not long after he was a free man for the first time in nearly a decade and a half, he was ready to start the first day of the rest of his life, except there was a snag. Because he was such a terrible prisoner and he did not engage in any of the reformation programs in prison, I mean, like he took no training inside the joint at all. He had no employable skills, according to reports. I mean, six months after getting out of jail for the bank robberies, he was caught at a bookstore masturbating to what appeared to be child exploitation material on his laptop. Yeah, CP. He was accused of jerking it to CP, and he was arrested for it. And the cops were actually at that point able to tie him to another porn-related incident. And the research, I'll admit, is a bit vague on what that was, but given what we know he did at a Barnes & Noble, I think you can assume what he was into, which is disgusting. And as a result of this, he only spent a few more months in jail. So yeah, he got 14 years for robbing banks and beating up bank tellers, I get that, but only a few months for wanking it to CP publicly? I think Canada really needs to get its fucking priorities in order on this one. Now, after he got out of jail for the CP-related stuff, he decided to head back to the Windsor Flying Club and reapply for membership to get his pilot's license. Somehow, the people who handle club membership were okay with this. I mean, they were okay with having a bank-robbing, CP-loving, teenage celebrity-obsessed criminal among their ranks. In fact, they were asked about this later on, and their explanation was simply, who are we to judge? Are you fucking kidding me? This town had 200,000 people in it. Was the membership just down for the year? I mean, sure, I get the concept of second chances, but the whole jerking it to kids charge should be enough to ban him from ever coming back. I mean, okay, look, to be fair, maybe they didn't know. These are probably boomers who don't know how technology works, and they probably thought that because he was an ex-bank robber, he'd always, you know, pay his dues, which is exactly what he did. Callan was a model Windsor Flying Club member, even though he had no job and reportedly no money. He was able to pay his dues and rent planes on a regular basis. I mean, maybe he was dipping into the finances that he wanted Miranda Cosgrove to have power of attorney over. I feel like there were several red flags leading up to what happened next, and the fact that no one said anything kind of baffles me. The last flight that Michael Callan took was when he rented a Cessna 172R for an overnight trip to Paley Island in the nearby Lake Erie. And this wasn't uncommon for him to do either. He had been reported to travel there pretty frequently. 
So it was something that wasn't really out of question and no one really paid attention. So he departed the airport at approximately 6 p.m. And two and a half hours later, he closed his flight plan. This usually means that the pilot has landed, but Michael Catlin didn't land on the small Lake Erie Island. Nope. In fact, he actually snuck his way into U.S. airspace and headed towards the Nashville International Airport. Callan was an experienced pilot, and according to authorities, he actually mapped this flight path by hand. In order to pull off this stunt, he'd not be able to be in contact with any radio tower, or anyone for that fact. So he had to do it by sight and hand preparation. However, he didn't account for the weather. That particular night at about 2 a.m. in Nashville, there was a dense fog that had little to no visibility. Radar records after the fact showed that Callan entered the Nashville International Airspace at about 1.50 a.m. in a 20-mile nautical ring. For some odd reason, he kind of decided to fuck around a bit by taking the plane through little loops at the end of the airport airspace, and then he did circles over the runways. He was most likely looking for a place to land. Like I said, he was an experienced pilot, but he wasn't certified to land in this kind of weather. So when he tried to land, he lost control, and the plane flipped, burst into flames, and skidded across the ground for a little over 650 feet. But here's where it gets weird. From there, the plane sat, undisturbed, for the next five hours. This is the Nashville International Airport that just had a four-seater Cessna obliterate itself on the runway, and no one saw or heard anything. I mean, yeah, the fog was thick enough that even though one employee did hear something like a truck backfiring a few times, he didn't think to report it. Michael Callan died instantly, as I'm pretty sure we all figured he did. And what's crazy is that when investigators searched the wreckage, they did find a few personal items of Callan's next to his body, which, in case you were wondering, was in fact burnt to a crisp. The rental form he used from the Windsor Flying Club was still intact. And while it did list his home address, which was just a flop house in the middle of the city, it did have one weird anomaly, his emergency contact. In big block letters, the name Taylor Swift was written. The authorities believe that Michael Callan made this trip on an impulse, which is why he didn't tell anyone about it. But I honestly don't believe that. He had to rebuild trust with the Windsor Flying Club to get access to a plane. So he paid his dues and he would rent the small Cessna to fly to Paley Island pretty frequently, he knew that if he said he was doing that, it wouldn't raise suspicion. There were no flight records for Paley Island to confirm that he even went there, but that's also because the airport is pretty unregulated, so there wouldn't be any records. But he then navigated himself by hand from Ontario to Nashville by flying under the radar to avoid detection. At some point, though, he started drinking on the airplane. And when they performed the autopsy, they discovered that his blood alcohol level was 0.081, right over the legal limit. He wasn't drunk per se, but he was definitely impaired. This might explain why he did loops on the outskirts of the Nashville International Airport airspace before circling the runways to try to find a place to land. Now, as for what he planned when he landed in Nashville, no one knows. Maybe he didn't think that far ahead, but it was clear that he was there to try and see Taylor Swift. So lucky for her that he kamikazed himself before anything really bad could happen. And I don't know 
if Michael Callan would have done anything terrible if he landed. But at the same time, I'm not going to shed a tear for a guy like this. He could have been a pilot. He could have done the right thing. But instead, he allowed himself to be a disgusting, terrible human being. 14 years in prison didn't reform him and only probably made him worse. He was well known around the Windsor area for being a bank robber, so he probably couldn't find any real work. But he probably was paying off everything at the club with money he had stashed away. Hoping maybe he would be able to impress Taylor Swift or get Taylor Swift to introduce him to Miranda Cosgrove or who knows who else he might have been obsessed with. At the end of the day, nothing of value was lost. And I don't think his family would disagree with me on that front. This guy was clearly a predator and he was clearly a pedophile. So I don't feel bad that he burned to a crisp on the Nashville International Airport runway when he stole a plane, crossed international borders, and tried going to see Taylor Swift. It's a weird story. It's one that I came across and I just had to talk about. But I do want to hear your thoughts and your opinions on this one. So let me know down in the comment section here on YouTube. If you're listening to this on the podcast, please follow me on Twitter at MJarbo. I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Stranger Days. Have yourself a great day and peace out.